Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My guest this week is the host of the Busy Being Black podcast, Josh Rivers. Josh, welcome to the show. Hi, Nathan. Thank you. October is the month when we celebrate Black History Month in the UK. Why is it so important that we have a Black History Month? I think Black History Month is important precisely because Black people continue to be undermined, undervalued, underestimated, not only in the present day, but historically. Um, Black people across the world have made tremendous contributions to culture, politics, ideas of liberation, abolition, um, what it means to be human, what it means to love, live, to be compassionate, civil, all of that. And so often we see that Black people's contributions in Black culture more broadly, um, Black culture's um, contributions to the world um, go under-recognized and in many cases disregarded and diminished. Mm -hmm. So I think Black History Month is important for a number of reasons. One, it, it helps Black people primarily know that we have long, varied, and various histories and stories to tell across time, that we haven't just arrived wherever we are um, as a figment of some white man's imagination, um, and that we have a culture to be very um, proud of, um, and cultures, I should say, because Blackness is not monolithic. Um, and I think also it's important for those who are non-Black to understand the scale and scope of Black thought, Black leadership, Black activism, and the complexities within Black histories. You've mentioned some of the, the reasons why we have Black History Month, you know, the liberation, promotion of voices uh, within Black communities. But, and you know, so much progress has been made over the, the last few decades. But what more is there that can be done to ensure we are in a, a much, much more equal society? Define progress. Well, for starters, in so many parts of the world, and you know, undoubtedly, there are countries where there are serious issues. We, there is equality under the law, equal rights, vote, voting rights, particularly in the United States. I know this is a, a bigger issue, but you know, in in terms of under the law, that there are equal rights in in most parts and most areas. But what more do you think? There is that, that can be done. Well, I think we have to, the reason I asked that question mm. is because we have to really think about and interrogate what progress means, right? Because okay. it's very easy to say we've made progress, but actually what are the real term material um, realities for black people in the UK, in the US, mm. across Europe? I did a, a podcast um, series with the European Cultural Foundation exploring queer black solidarity across Europe during the COVID-19 crisis. Now, mm -hmm. prima facie, we were going to talk about how black 
queer communities are showing up for each other during during the crisis. But it became a conversation about entrenched fault lines across Europe, what it means to be Black in Europe, why queer Black solidarity continues to be necessary pre, during, and post-pandemic. Um, and it became a much larger conversation about Europe as a white supremacist state. So we got to talk about what progress means, what equality means. And it's one thing to write a law that says racism is bad, but it's, it's very rarely um, applied, right? People are very rarely punished for racist violence. And in fact, racist violence is um, spewed and perpetrated at the highest levels of office in the UK. So when we talk about progress, we have to have very concrete examples of what that progress is. And that progress can only be measured by what Black people tell you their lived experience is, right? I would say that we've had the you know, the, the language of progress without the realities of progress. And nowhere is that clearer than in increasing police budgets, both here and in the U.S., the militarization of the border, increasingly the, tr the treatment of refugees and asylum seekers, the, you know, Suella um, Blackman, I can't remember her surname. Uh, Suella Blackman. Thank you. That's how little I care about this woman. But, you know, she's she's bragging about her dream being, you know, of, of the front page of the Times or the Telegraph, a plane taking off to Rwanda. I mean, th this doesn't seem like progress to me. Right. Um, the fact that we live in, that we're living under a kind of draconian fascist regime that doesn't actually allow the public to vote on who are our leaders. Um, that doesn't that doesn't equal progress to me. So I think a lot more needs to be done. I think I would love to see a more robust political education among the people of, of the UK um, and, and the US, right? I'm British American. And mm -hmm. so I think I can speak across both yeah. countries and cultures um, because what we're seeing now is an evacuation of political thought, of critical thinking. We, are, we have charlatans singing to us every day and people are lapping it up. And mm -hmm. so I think that in order for us to understand what progress looks like, we have to be able to define it as a people, yeah. as a country, as um, citizens, as a as a collective unit working towards a common goal. And we haven't yet done that. Black History Month, it, it began in the United States 52 years ago, but was celebrated in the UK for the first time in 1987, with the event each year focusing on a different issue or a different theme. And this year, and I think this follows on quite, quite nicely from what you were saying there, this year the theme is time for change, actions, not words. So what, what does that actually mean? What, what sort of actions can be taken? You got me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have very complicated feelings about Black History Month generally, mm -hmm. right? Okay. I do think it tends to be quite decorative. Mm -hmm. I do think it provides an opportunity for lip service allyship. I think it provides mm -hmm. an opportunity for people to say, this is what we care about. And when I say people, I mean organizations. I mean that the structures that we live um, under, um, it gives them a chance to say, look, we profiled black people or 2% of our workforce is black and therefore we care about black lives. Um, and so I guess when I think about what action looks like, it goes back to that question of progress. Um, mm. I, I wanna see you know, our public services not being gutted. That's an action that the people of this country could ask and take the government to task for. Um, we could demand more for everybody. You know, there's this study that took place in the US and I don't know if it's been replicated in the UK or not, but um, the, the short version is that white people will deny themselves advancements if those advancements will also serve the progress of black people. That's the short version. Right. And I think that we see that anecdotally um, playing out here in the UK as well. Mm -hmm. We have 
so much that we deserve as citizens that we don't get. And the way that Suella Braverman treats refugees and asylum seekers, and indeed the government treats poor people, homeless people, young people, children, the poor, um, is a demonstration that none of us actually have the rights and privileges of citizenship that we actually deserve. So I think that we can use Black History Month to think let's see how badly Black people are treated and then compare that to how the rest of us are treated. It's not going to be an, an equal equation, right? But it is going to give us an, an idea about where we can start because the police bill, for example, people thought that this was just going to this is going to impact protesters protesting Black Lives Matter. And as we see, it, it, was, it was weaponized during the, the ascension of, of King Charles. So no one is safe from these kind of punitive laws and policies and attitudes that impact Black people most adversely, most disproportionately. And I think that we have to start there in taking action. What do we all deserve as a nation? Who do we want to be? Just picking up on the, the survey that you mentioned before, which to, to use your own, was it saying that essentially white people will de- deny themselves advancements or uh, career progression in, in favor of black people. Do you, do you think- Not career some, progression, uh, like societal improvement. So, societal progression, right. Okay. So do you think in some ways there's perhaps a sense of guilt that's been developed? I mean, the, the Black Lives Matter protests and movements, they, without question, no matter what side of the political spectrum or aisle you, you sit on, it's all made us reassess our views and attitudes towards race. But do you think in some ways a sense of guilt has been uh, developed, perhaps from uh, white people and white, white communities, that actually that is the reason why uh, some feel the need to sort of step aside to uh, promote black voices? It's a good question. The thing that comes to mind is Toni Morrison saying that guilt is self-indulgent, right? It doesn't Guilt doesn't really do anything for the person you feel guilty about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just something that you get to kind of wallow in yourself and therefore is self-indulgent. Mm-hmm. I think there's a couple of things here, and it's not so simple as people stepping aside to talk about Black voices, right? Because again, like allyship is nothing without action and accountability, right? And what we see kind of at an organizational and structural standpoint is people saying Black Lives Matter, but not actually creating any system structures or, Mm. or metrics for accountability that would ensure Black lives actually do in the real world. And I think that's the struggle that Black people are confronted with across the world now. It's like, you all said that you were learning. You all said that you were going to stand up for us. You all said that you were going to do your reading and you haven't because if you had, we would. this country would be on fire at the moment, right? Because mm. what we're getting is not good enough, not just for Black people, but for any of us. And also your, your point about certain organizations trying to sort of use Black Lives Matter as a type of self-promotion uh, strategy. You know, for a month a year, they change their social media profiles. They change all the corporate branding to have certain colors and show this allyship. But do you think that is because people in these organizations do truly believe in the, the messaging, in the, the logic and reasoning behind Black Lives Matter and Black History Month? Or is it just simply a PR strategy and just only paying lip service to the issues? I think it's all of the above, right? Okay. You will have people, white, black, non-black POC, who care and want to make change and who have entered into organizations or have entered into the system, what have you. I mean, I, that was my approach initially. I thought mm. I'm going to enter into the ivory tower and to the, the big house mm. and I'm going to try to affect change from the inside. That's not my particular mm. strength. And so therefore I'm kind of outside of, of the structures as much as I can be, you know, working within my communities. 
And so I think that there are people within organizations who really believe it and whose who's lived experience within those organizations matters, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that, you know, Google having a Black History Month is purely decorative. I'm mm-hmm. saying that collectively, societally, culturally, Black mm-hmm. History Month appears to be quite decorative because the promises that are made largely during Black History Month are not followed through the rest of the year. And representation around race as well, it, it does influence the, the way we, we think about it and see race and racial issues. And you know, every, every so often in newspapers, they will write a story fe- featuring a, a black person and then uh, as their photo caption, every, every so often use a picture of a completely different black person. Mm-hmm. And you may have seen just this week, uh, the Daily Mirror in, in the UK published an article about the new Chancellor of the Exchequer, Kwasi Kwarteng, but captioned it with a picture of another black man who just happened to be standing outside the treasury. You know, do do you think the the press, and I'm I'm going to use it in the UK context for now, but do you think the press and the media does have a problem when it comes to dealing with race issues and actually dealing with representation? Yes. Yes. (laughs) I mean, I don't know how... (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, and that is one example of, Mm. of, of many. I mean, we saw just a couple of weeks ago with the Stormzy video um, release and one of a journalist um, whose surname I can't remember, but Toby, um, you know, made a mock satirical tweet saying that Mel is a teacher that so many of us had who helped us believe in ourselves. And literally most of the media took that tweet as evidence that Stormzy was talking about a teacher Mm. that loads of black people had had been tutored by um, without thinking, you know, she even says Toby in her, in her tweet um, that she helped us be good blacks. I mean, hello, <laughs> like the fact that no one in your organization flags that good blacks is not something you want to be printing <laughs> reveals like, it's just the tip of the iceberg, right? But we know that newsrooms are something like 94% white or something. So um, a, maybe a bigger problem than representation, or at least connected to it, um, is what is the media's role in the UK? And so as long as the media's role in, in the UK is to be a protector of power, um, is to be a lapdog for the royal family, um, is to be an apologist for sexual abusers, um, it doesn't matter how many Black people um, or Brown people or women are at the helm of these organizations if their very function mm. is negative. And on the question around representation at the moment, you know, more more and more we're seeing, particularly in TV and film, there's a, a greater push for diversity and increased representation for other groups and ethnicities, which you know I'm sure we both agree is a, a noble endeavour. It's something we should want to see. However, in the annual Diamond Survey by an organisation called the Creative Diversity Network, they found that in in the UK for the last two years. BAME people have had far greater representation on screen than off screen. What sort of message do you think that sends to the entertainment industry? Uh, do you mean off screen as in behind the scenes? Yes. Yeah. So behind the scenes in uh, in crews and uh, uh, so, so in the production side of it. I think it speaks to a number of things. There's a structural issue here in that how accessible is the entertainment industry for 
um, Black and minority ethnic communities. It's also worth noting that BAME is not the preferred language. That was kind of um, addressed. One of the good things the government actually did in the past couple of years mm-hmm. uh, was actually addressed in a, in a governmental report mm-hmm. after, um, you know, kind of widespread and ongoing feedback that mm-hmm. BAME kind of lumps together people who have actually very different and unique lived experiences, even when they are interconnected and okay. um, experienced um in experiencing discrimination and, and um, racism. Mm-hmm. So for I'll speak to Black people specifically, mm-hmm. I understand there are any number of hurdles mm-hmm. imagined and real in mm-hmm. getting into entertainment. You know, let, let's think about, um, let's take one example. I, I'm just mm-hmm. pulling this out of the air. But let's say there's a videographer or someone wants to be a videographer. Do they have access to the resources to put, get a video um, recorder in their hand? Do they have access to editing software? Do they have a teacher who's going to uphold them and encourage them? Do they have access to community college or the right education and training to do that? Do they have a foot in the door? Right? Do they have yeah. someone who's willing to give them a shot? Um, and I think the answer to many of those questions is going to be no. Right? Mm-hmm. And we might then connect that to the school to prison pipeline, right? That uh, Caribbean boys are something like 75% more likely to be expelled from school. Mm-hmm. They disproportionately make up the school to prison pipeline. The connection there being that school expulsions um, increase likelihood of imprisonment later in life. Um, and so, you know, we can talk about the entertainment industry as being inaccessible 100% mm-hmm. and as on-screen representation being a bit lip servicey, mm-hmm. right? A bit tokenistic often, mm-hmm. particularly if they're not Black people um, telling their own stories. But we also can't divorce the entertainment industry from the wi- the wider societal um, context that makes the entertainment industry what it is, both in profit and in structure. And in the same report, it, it's also identified that Black people, and this was in the context of the UK, it's important to know, in the context of the UK, that black people were overrepresented on screen with 23% taking on screen roles, uh, despite uh, black people making up 13% of the national workforce in the UK. So if if we are working with this basis that there has been a sense of overrepresentation on screen, do you think perhaps in 20, 30, 40 years time when race is being researched and analysed by historians and academics, we could be potentially running the risk of painting a false picture of race in Britain. I'm trying to understand the the use of overrepresentation in this context. The short answer is no, right? Because this the suggestion that in the future, you know, we might have painted a better picture than is actually true suggests that black people are not part of a conversation about their future in the first place, mm-hmm. right? It suggests that we won't have any narrative. Um, power or that we won't actually be there to tell the story as it is. And I think we see this in publishing, right? That every year, another book, another 10, 20, 100 books comes Mm -hmm. out from Black people saying, this is what the actual lived experience is. Um, And we can look back and we've got lots of people coming out and saying, this is what actually happened during the civil rights movement, or this is what actually happened during the class uprisings in the 80s in the UK. You know, and so we've got we've always got someone correcting the historical record. So I, I want to say, no, I don't think that we're ever going to have that problem of, of the UK being given <laughs> credit for doing better than actually did. Okay. Like no one believes that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm just curious about this of representation statistic and, and why people would be, what use it is to, and I don't know the answer to this, mm-hmm. um, what use it is to measure representation on screen versus representation of the population. I suppose it's quite a, an interesting concept, you know, because the, the report stating that it was there's 13% of black people in the, the national workforce at the moment, but 
an extra 10% or uh, represented on television film roles. And Sorry to interrupt. Another reason for that is that Black people and Black culture are cool, right? Mm. <laughs> there are, we are the metric for coolness, mm. for hipness, for whatever, right? And however racist and reductive that is. Mm. Um, and so I think that it'd be interesting to know how that representation has changed on screen over time mm. um, relative to the population. I mean, I'm, I don't know. Yeah. Like, I just yeah. think that it's a weird... It's a weird intersection to explore. I, I'd need to see the report. Okay, but well, let, let's focus a bit more on uh, Black history at the moment. And when Black history is taught in schools, there are some who will criticise it for not being balanced enough. So, uh, as I, I, I give an example, that you know, there's absolutely no question that during the times of the British Empire, horrific crimes were committed, and there's some truly he- heinous things that took place against. Black people. But what isn't taught as widely is the fact that Britain uh, ended the slave trade 30 years before the United States. And it was the Royal Navy that pioneered that and uh, began actually pay- the process of paying reparations to slave owners at that time. Do you think in teaching Black history that there does need to be a, a greater sense of balance on, on teaching both, both sides of the argument? Or do you think at the moment we are starting to find just a kind of equilibrium within that? So Kalechi Akafor made a really good point actually on social media mm. the other day. Um, the the UK likes to take credit for quote unquote abolishing the slave trade, and you know British people talk about it ad absurdum. That's uh, all they ever talk about when it comes to black people. We abolish the slave trade um, thirty years before everyone else. Um, but Kalechi made a really good point. Uh, the UK <laughs> was also hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years older and had been involved longer than the U.S. when they had abolished it, quote-unquote, early. Mm. Um, it also wasn't the, the abolishing of the slave trade for mm. the U.K. didn't just come about out of benevolence. Oh, right? no, no, of course. There were, there were concerns about, you know, all sorts of political mm. happenings, uprisings, that the Haitian Revolution had a huge impact on, on what, mm. you know, the empire thought was possible and what they wanted to deal with. So it's a... It was abolished, but it wasn't an act of benevolence. It was an act of, you know, self-preservation for one, right? And that history, that flattened mm. history, i.e. we abolished it first, mm. is taught, right? Mm. And so the, the it's already imbalanced, right? Because mm. one, it's taught flattened and incorrect mm. yeah. and without the necessary context that would, you know, help people yeah. understand that, that Britain isn't the benevolent nation that's always said it was. And, and second, like, I don't know if you can talk too mm. much Black history in the gap. Right. Like, I don't know that there's there's an that during Black History Month, we should also be turning to our white history, mm-hmm. which is black history and saying, but let's hear it for the white mm-hmm. people. Right. <laughs> like yeah. no, if for 11 months out of the year, all we hear about is how wonderful and important white people are. And it's 31 days of prioritizing and centering black people. And that can't be mm. done without, quote unquote, balance or without, quote unquote, yeah. both sides. I think that says more about whiteness than it does about black people. Mm-hmm. But again, yeah, that's the point, though. You mentioned there the wider context of that. I just stated an example of, of something that's uh, taught and discussed in, in schools. But you mentioned there the, the wider context of that. Mm. And having done uh, history at, at school and, and currently doing a, a his, history degree, you know, that, that wider context, it's, it's something that isn't prioritized. We tend to focus on just the, the basic facts and perhaps put a bit of meat on the bone, so to speak, with that. And so I guess that, that kind of follows on as my next question. Do you think we need to prioritize that wider context? Uh, actually, promotes the other issues that happened surrounding the main events to try and give that greater 
understanding of what what happened. Yeah, one hundred percent. And it's it's about perspectives as well, mm. right? Like I don't think that you can understand the British slave trade mm. or its move to abolish it without mm. understanding the French the French's mm. role yeah. or France's role rather, sorry, English, mm. um, or without understanding what Portugal and the Portuguese mm. were doing or what was happening in Brazil or what was happening in the Caribbean, mm. right? Like I, I think that, that there are different perspectives, and to give you like a more modern example i'm currently mm-hmm. reading guy Ocking gems after may 68 mm-hmm. alongside towards a gay communism by mario miele mm-hmm. and you know one dimensional queer by roderick ferguson because i'm trying to paint for myself a better understanding mm-hmm. of what happened pre and post stonewall right because mm-hmm. 1969 is apparently when the movement started and that's not true right mm-hmm. <laughs> like there was loads of activism taking place long before that, but we don't get taught it. And so there also has to be a pursuit, right? There also has to be, when we're teaching, we're not just teaching what we as teachers or we as older people or as we as people who care about education want people to know. It's also we're teaching people how to go look for themselves, how to ask great questions like you're doing, like I do on the podcast, you know, how to search and find and be curious. And because our education system is much more than here's what happened over a period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're trying to teach people how to survive in the world. And so I feel very lucky that I come from communities for whom education didn't just happen. Mm-hmm. I wasn't just left to be taught by teachers. Like I was always taught that you have to go find more information and mm-hmm. ask questions all the time. And so I think that's an essential component of what's, of what's missing. And I yeah. think that we need to give kids, all people actually, <laughs> to go back to our earlier yeah. point in the conversation about yeah. the political education of the country, um, you know, the tools to do that. Speaking of podcasts, you are, of course, the host of the, the Busy Being Buck podcast. So for listeners who ha- haven't heard it or uh, uh, maybe heard the name, don't know too much about it, could you just give an overview of some of the things you do look at on, on the podcast? Yeah. So Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer lives. Mm-hmm. Queer is a Black queerness um, and is a word and a position, I guess, that was put forward by one of my favorite academics and scholars, E. Patrick Johnson, back in 2002. Um, and so I have conversations with artists, intellectuals, academics, thinkers, creators, um, actors, all sorts of people about how they've learned to live, love, thrive at the intersection of their identities. Um, We talk about hope, joy, activism, um, abolition, the future. The conversations for October um, are focused largely on Afrofuturism, utopia, and Black futures, who are some of the people who are helping us think um, bigger about our place within the universe. Um, And to give you an an example of how conversations come, come about on the show, I was like everybody, really awestruck by the images that the NASA Webb Telescope returned to us back in July, or as I call it, the Just Wonderful Space Telescope. And I couldn't make sense of the conversation that people were having about how we are small, right? Like Mm -hmm. that we're insignificant. And so I thought, how do I find someone to reaffirm what I believe, which is that we're very big and that these images kind of reaffirm our bigness and our importance and significance in the world. And that actually started a chain reaction of conversations with an astrophysicist, an Afrofuturist, a a screenwriter and director, a musician from South Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, So I try to have deep searching, intellectually rigorous and tender and vulnerable conversations with mostly queer black people about what it means to live fully. In conversations and discussions about race, it it can be quite easy to slide into the pessimistic, but from the sounds that your podcast really focuses on optimism and hope for the future in in large part. So when so much of the 
national, even international conversation does focus on the negatives. How do you go about trying to find the, the positives in this? How do you try and find the more optimistic side of this and the, the more hopeful uh, side of discussing race? I think optimism is a word I've never used to describe the show or the conversation. So that's mm. an interesting word that you've knocked into my orbit. Um, I, I do pursue hope and joy. Mm. I think, you know, the, the last question I ask most of the guests on the show is what do you hope for? Mm. And the question I open the show with is how's your heart? Because I care about how you feel. Yeah. And most of the time when I speak to my black friends or black family members, they're not saying I'm beleaguered by racism right now. I need to talk to <laughs> yeah. someone about it. You know, it's typically non-black people who want to talk mm. about race. Mm. It's, us who want to talk about how our lives are going. Right. Um, Kevin Kwashi, another one of my favorite academics, has a beautiful book called The Sovereignty of Quiet. Mm -hmm. And in it, he argues that Blackness, as we understand it, is anti-Black, right? Blackness is always supposed to tell us something about race, slavery, abolition, blood, violence, imprisonment, and that this construction of Blackness robs Black people of what he calls our wild and voluptuous interior lives. Mm -hmm. And so Busy Being Black is very much an attempt at exploring our interiority and at showing other Black people that, you know, you, you might be asked questions about race all the time, but you will not be asked questions about race on Busy Being Black because there's, a, there's an assumed mm -hmm. understanding right. among us. Just to finish then, bringing our conversation back to Black History Month, what do you hope is the message people take away from this year's Black History Month and really reflect on? I just want people to pay attention mm -hmm. during Black History Month and beyond, because yeah. so many of us are doing work every single day to mm -hmm. give people the tools they need to be better in the world. And that's not just Black people offering tools to white people. That's Black people offering tools to each other. And I think that as Black people, we would do well to remember that Black History Month is also primarily for us and that we should try to focus on the things that we need to know and that we want to learn and that we want to celebrate. And without having to translate that for the white gaze, G-A-Y-S-N-G-A-Z-E, I would say, <laughs> you know, but for everybody to pay attention because... Sometimes I get very frustrated because I feel like I speak loudly and often and things don't change mm -hmm. or people don't hear me when I speak. And when I've said that to people before, they've mm -hmm. said, you know what, I'm so sorry. I wasn't listening. I'm going to pay attention. And so I think people, if we give them the chance and we ask them to, they will pay attention. So that's my hope is that people start paying attention and and, and honor us all in this work that mm -hmm. we're doing um, by doing their own part too. Okay. Josh Rivers, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you, Nathan. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.